You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writers' Centre at writerscentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 49 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? I'm not too bad. It seems as though the painters from next door are almost finished. So the sanding, water blasting and very loud radios of the last couple of weeks are going to be moving out very soon. So that makes me very cheerful. Very, on a Monday. Very, la- very loud radios. Oh. Yeah, yeah they've that's... been blasting us. It's been really quite entertaining. Oh, okay. But also, and this is very good for a writer, very loud phone calls. Oh. <laughs> I get one side of very loud phone calls and then I just fill in the other side <laughs> with whatever I want, which is highly entertaining. Oh, my God. Well, I at know. least there's making progress. There's progress happening at your end, even yes. if it is your neighbours. Exactly <laughs> right. What about you? Well, my aircon has not been fixed yet. Oh, no. So I feel that one day when it does get fixed, it will probably be winter yes. and it will be all too late. But, you know, <laughs> I'm just – What did just, you do to it? I to- do not know. I cannot. It's obviously very unhappy with you. Very unhappy. Just doesn't want to come back. I know. <laughs> it hates me. It's moved out. <laughs> it hates me. <laughs> I've become very, very, you know, um, familiar with the aircon man. <laughs> Hopefully not overly familiar. Not though. overly familiar, but anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we want to welcome a lot of our listeners because um, especially our new listeners who have only discovered us recently and we've checked our stats and we've noticed that. of you are from the US. So welcome to all of our um, US listeners as well as all the the other listeners from all over the world. There's lots from the United Arab Emirates, lots, of course, from Australia and New Zealand and a bunch of other countries as well. So thank you for tuning in to us. Indeed. 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 Thank you so much. So let's see what's happening in the world of writing and publishing and blogging this week. Uh, I came across this link, which I think is awesome, (laughs) and it's called, it's from Listverse, and it's just a fun compilation uh, called 10 Writers Who Took Themselves Way Too Seriously, and um, it details, it's absolutely worth a read, it details a bunch of writers and the things that they have done that maybe they might regret now. So, for example, gothic horror author Anne Rice, you know, we're very familiar with Anne Rice, uh, has never been one to take criticism lightly. After readers trashed her novel, one of her novels, um, she <laughs> she had <clears throat> she wrote the next novel by having, and in that she wrote, had the main character insult readers for being too stupid to understand it. And when mm-hmm. that book, Blood Canticle, received awful Amazon reviews, she wrote a 1,200-word diatribe, which she posted to Amazon, mm-hmm. 
in her own five-star review of her own book (laughs) where she lashed out at readers who were, uh, in her words, interrogating the book from the wrong perspective. She called them arrogant and stupid. She she mentioned specific reviewers by name and she went on and on and on. But that's – and that's just Anne Rice. There are other ones who – uh, there's an author, Alice Hoffman, who mm. was unhappy with a just a you know so an, an okay review on um, on a on a particular blog for her book, The Story of Her Sisters, and she went onto Twitter and spent 27 tweets calling the reviewer a moron before then you know posting the reviewer's private phone number and email online. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Do you hear my horror? My, uh, this is like I need popcorn. This is like I've got the the whole the sound effects going for a horror story here. I but know. Yeah, wow. Okay. They're that nuts. really hurts. They're nuts. And there's one author, um, uh, Jacqueline Howitt, who uh, read the review by someone called Big Al, an indie book reviewer, who reviewed you know, Jacqueline Howitt's book, The Greek Seaman. And um, he praised the story but it indicated that there were lots of spelling and grammar errors and, you know, sentence construction. So <laughs> Jacqueline Howitt was shocked that anyone could review her book so unfavorably. She went onto the comments of um, Big Al's blog and just began copying and pasting positive reviews from Amazon onto his mm-hmm. blog. And I remember when this happened. Off. I remember this happening because nice. I've been on the internet for so long yes. that I remember this happening and it was absolutely mind-boggling at the time. And that whole blog um, it's really worth having a look at if it's still there because it it was just it's it's a it's a primer in mm. what not to do. It is definitely still there. I've just che- I checked it out this morning. Oh, great! And um, but what Jacqueline Howitt has since done is deleted her comments. So oh. instead of reading her comments, you'll see it says the author of this comment you know deleted their post. But mm-hmm. you you will see the full thread of all the other commenters who will say, "Wow, this author's really does this done herself a disservice by by all of her comments on this blog." Which and there's over four hundred comments. But um, you know there. There's 10 of these really bizarre stories in this list, which is just worth a laugh, to be honest, and also a lesson of what not to do. So we'll put the link in the show notes. But, yes, there's certainly – they're they're not – and there's a lot of famous ones as well. There's, you know, Nicholas Sparks. That's that's my personal (laughs) favourite. I just have to put that out there. Who Nicholas Sparks, who believes he has a genre all of his own and that there are no other authors writing romance ever yeah. in the history of the world, which yeah. I just find fascinating. Anyway. So, 10 yeah. writers who took themselves <laughs> way too seriously. <laughs> but oh, now yes. for something very different. Um, the statistics came out, numbers came out for magazine circulations uh, last week mm. and in Australia. And it's been interesting because while some uh, magazines increased in, um, you know, in their circulation, and not that many, but uh, certainly um, uh, Australian Traveller had a 15.1% increase, which is wow. actually huge, and that's yeah. actually ed- edited by a grad- former uh, student of the Australian Writers' Centre, so we're really proud of Georgia. Um, but also they've posted, you know, there have been magazines who've posted falls, and an interest, the most interesting one, and of course this is the headline, is that Frankie magazine has seen its circulation drop for the first time in the magazine's history, mm. but the 
other shocking one has been that Dolly, you know, the teenage Bible, dropped by 40%, which is massive. That is massive. So Mm. interesting because, you know, wondering where the teens are going. I wonder. Yes. Well, would you like to wonder and speculate on that a little bit, or well, should we just? <laughs> <laughs> I'm oh. sure they're going online. I'm sure they're going on Snapchat, and I'm sure they're going on exactly. you know, those sorts of things. But um, but it's been interesting that you know Frankie was just on the rise and on the rise for so long. Has been the darling of the magazine industry, and um, not that long ago, its two founders left the the, the, the company mm-hmm. about a year ago, and. Um, yeah, it's interesting that one of the people from the magazine has said uh, that um, it's 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 maybe a coincidence, but it's usually what happens when you've got really inspired people that produce something that's very different to what else is available in the market, and they nurture it to life and attract a growing audience. When they leave the building, usually yeah. circulation plateaus pretty quickly. It doesn't yeah. have the same soul anymore. It's interesting, isn't it? Because the passion that drove Frankie mm. was very personal. Yeah, very much. In any so. ways, yeah. And, and their network. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Oh, well, there's a cheery Monday story for us, Valerie. Yes, but let's concentrate on the publications that increased. Let's. You know, apart yes. from Australian Traveller, Sport Fishing Australia. <laughs> 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 I, it's good to see Home Beautiful, though, as well. Yes. I think it's great to see that because I think the home and lifestyle um, segment of the market is, you know, is is often one of the most stable areas. So it's yeah. good to see that that's, you know, increasing. And Vogue Living as well. Yeah. Mm. Great. So we have another one um, which I wanted to ask you about, actually. Mm. So this is called Calendars, Timelines and Collages, Mapping the Imaginary. Now, that's not a very useful title to explain what this is about, but this is, it's, it's actually a post where an author has asked other authors mm-hmm. for their, their notes or the things that they use, whether they're calendars or maps or timelines, to help them – craft their book you know some people have a scrapbook some people have a pinterest page some people write notes in a really linear fashion other people write their notes um, all over a giant piece of paper and there's photos of all of these notes some people type them all up in a really clear you know um, a really clear timeline so even though last week I asked you, what does your desk look like now? Because, you, you know, I, I, when you're in the depths, and you described it, you know, but when you're in the depths of writing a novel and you're building this world and you've got all these characters and stuff like that, and obviously your series is the Mapmaker Chronicles, yep. do you have maps all over your walls? Do you have pictures? How, how do you form your characters? Do you do it visually where you stick pictures of what they might wear and what they might eat and that sort of thing? Um, no, not so much. I mean, I do have maps all around me, but I just sort of have those anyway because I like them. Um, but I will stick – I do have like antique post, like map postcards and bits and pieces. Um, I tend to be quite linear about the, these things. Like when I was putting together the Mapmaker Chronicles, and particularly once I realised that it was going to be more than one book, mm. I started to keep a uh, series bible so that I would know, you know, what the characters looked like. So that yes. by the time I got to book two and things like that, like I have a very clear picture in my head of what they look like. Mm. I don't actually do visuals because I'm not particularly. I, it's just not the way my mind works. You know, I know some people need a picture, but I don't work like that. No. Um, 
So I have piles and piles and piles of paper everywhere mm. and I have bits of post-it note with scribbles all over it and I have on my uh, computer I have a Word document called Series Bible and every time I wrote something new I put that in the Bible as well so that I would remember like family history stuff and what people liked and what was in the hallway of Quinn's house and um, those kinds of things and what you know as far as what his map looks like I'm actually only just doing that right now Mm. which is a bizarre way to do it but I needed him to complete the adventure before I could complete the map mm. in the same way that he did yes. in a funny sort of way. Um, so I'm actually drawing the fantasy map as we speak, trying to draw pictures of narwhals, which is highly entertaining for everyone around me. Um, but, yeah, so that's my mine tends to be uh, I keep notes. Um, mostly I try to type them because, as we've discussed on several occasions, my handwriting is awful and I can't read it. Um, so, yeah, but but – when I'm actually in the depths of writing something, my office is a disaster zone. And um, what gave you the idea or what gave you that foresight to think of doing the series Bible? Well, I think the thing to kind of um, remember with this particular uh, book was that I had originally, when I first had the idea for it, I was like, oh, this would be a great idea. And then I thought to myself, oh, this could be a great series because, um, you know, he's going to travel around the world. He could go to a different, you know, continent, so to speak, each book Mm. and construct a a story that way. Um, So when I originally had outlined it, I had it outlined as six books and I had intended that they would uh, take a bit longer and they would do the whole lot. When I spoke to the publisher about it, they wanted to do it as three because – they wanted the timeline to be shorter, which which makes a lot of sense because then you have more impetus to drive the book. So I actually wrote the first book like just in NaNoWriMo, sat mm. down, wrote the 50,000. That was how I knew what was going to happen. I had no real clear picture of what was going to happen until I started writing it. So once I had written the first book, then I outlined the others. Mm-hmm. And when I say outlined, I'm talking about a paragraph. Like mm-hmm. that was it. This will happen in this book and they will go here and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So um, that it was it was pretty much a word document. It wasn't a it wasn't like I'm gonna do a mind map and a calendar and a it was nothing like that. It was just like this is what's gonna happen. It was very much um, character and plot driven. That was how it's gonna work. What does your series Bible actually look like? Is it a dictionary? So if it's Quinn and what he looks like is it you know under Q and no, how, do, how does it work no, I'm not that organized <laughs> now I have all the characters up front uh I've actually printed it out and put it in a folder so that now so that I can actually re- refer to it easily um each character has a page and I add to that page if something new comes up for that particular character like some important thing I need to remember um each family so the families are grouped together uh, so Quinn's Quinn's got five brothers. Each of them has a page. They're all together. The family history is is with them. And then I do the other characters within the book, all the sailors that are on board the boat, what who's on each boat, what each boat looks like, um, that, that kind of stuff. And then what else is in there? I'm just trying to think. Like, oh, what, what a Logan stone is, what a um, star stone is, what a – like a whole range of different things about 
um, the kinds of uh, animals, the languages that Quinn speaks. I have to keep track of that because he has a few. Um, yeah, just all little details, the kind of thing that you're going to forget mm. if you don't write it down. And, of course, a series Bible, it makes so much sense, especially if you it's something that you're going to be working on over a long period of time because, mm. um, you know, uh, Madame Bovary, very famously, her eyes are brown at the beginning and then they become deep black eyes and then towards the end of the book, they're blue eyes. So yes. <laughs> You don't even realise how much you talk about eyes until you get, <laughs> get yes. to the end of the book. I had, remember when I did uh, Rope Book 2 and I got to the end of it and I sent it off for the copy edit and they came back and they're like, oh, Ash's eyes are very <laughs> highly featured in this book. Remove several references. She was rolling her eyes and she was closing oh. her eyes. And she, honestly, you just don't even realize how much you do it until somebody else points it out to you. Wow. Mm. Um, okay, so something very different this week because there has been much discussion in recent years about content mills. Now, mm. for anyone who isn't familiar with content mills, they're basically like agencies or organizations that produce a lot of content and typically they're not the best quality content they're very low paying they're on particular subjects like if and they provide these content to usually businesses and organizations who just need stuff for their blog posts and you know websites so for example you might be writing an article about back pain for chiropractors or about swimming pools keeping swimming pools clean for a swimming pool website or you know about how to keep your teeth um, white for a dental website and there are some content mills or content farms that are just absolutely horrendous and there are some that are better quality. Uh, so there's a particular content mill called Demand Studios, which has, uh, according to this uh, link that we will put in the show notes, has imploded because oh. it, it was so successful with its mass content that it actually went public in uh, 2011. So, you know, it IPO'd, it went on the stock exchange. Um and, uh, you know, got a lot of investment and a lot of money. But since then, it has been in what this article describes as a death spiral. <laughs> and um, so basically what it's saying is, and when you look at the charts of uh, this, the, you know, for demand media, it's just this downward trend of what it's worth. And it's it's declared a loss of nearly $250 million. <laughs> So it's... um. It's not going well for that particular content mill. And this article is basically saying that it's a reflection of what's happening with content mills around in the industry, which is, you know, an interesting evolution um, of of for, for writers an interesting revolu- evolution for people who are organising content like this. But I think it's actually a great uh, result for writers. Because oh, so do I. Yeah. So do I. I really do. Because, you know, $5 a post to be writing the kind of stuff and just constantly writing, all you end up with is a portfolio, like you're spending an awful lot of time to earn 80 bucks and you end up with a portfolio that's worth nothing. Yeah. Um, You can... You can do the same job on your own, like find clients on your own, make better money and actually have something that's worth talking about for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think. And particularly if you're a writer who knows what they're doing, like which, you know, there are a lot of writers out there that do know what they're doing and hopefully now those writers will start to actually, um, you know, come to the fore again, which is great. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that one of the things that has seen this decline is because Google is actually 
and it has a has some kind of algorithm behind it that actually is recognizing quality content versus crappy content Yay. and the crappy content isn't being um isn't coming up in the searches and therefore it renders itself redundant in a sense. So I think the beauty is that not only is Google recognizing this, but so are consumers and people mm. want quality content. So it's no longer any useful just to whack blog posts up there just for SEO, you know what I mean, which is what yep. essentially these organizations were using content mills for. So it's 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 brilliant. I think it's a great result for writers. I, I mean, I don't uh, wish demand, uh, demand media any harm or anything no, like that. No, not at all. But I think that it's uh, great that the cream does rise to the top and that ultimately consumers can tell the difference, which is yeah. what's happening. Yeah, it's great. Mm. Speaking of great, I believe you have a book for us this week. Yes, I've been browsing around. It's one of these books that you can just dip into and it's called Literary Miscellany, Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Literature. Hmm. And it's just one of those, you know, don't you love trivia? It's just one of these great little <laughs> trivia books. Like, did you know that the first paperback to sell a million copies was Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People in 1936? Wow. And it went on to sell 15 million copies globally. <gasps> wow. And did you know that despite the title of Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, books actually uh, – Books actually burn at 450 degrees Celsius, but Bradbury Oh, <laughs> <I know. laughs> oh that's great. I love yes, that. But Jeez, that's a good book, though. Have you read that one? I have not. I mean, I know oh, what it's about, so but yes. Um, so. But Bradbury felt Fahrenheit sounded better. <laughs> Fair enough. It yes, does. He's it right. Does. <laughs> and we could go on for ages about all the little things that are in. It's full of, you know, little scandals. It's full of, you know, what writers, some famous writers um, averaged in terms of the word count per day. So oh. Ernest Hemingway averaged about 500 words a day, whereas someone like Somerset Maugham was 1,000 words a day, whereas someone like Tom Wolfe was 10,000 words a day. I don't know how that's possible. Wow. Anyway. Well, you were writing 10,000 words a day last week. Yeah, but that's, I can't keep that up. It's too exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> so are you back to 500? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Every Probably. word counts, Val. Remember that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, an interesting development in the world of blogs. Well, it might might be called a blog. I, I think of it sort of as a blog. The Carousel. Mm-hmm. You know the Carousel, which launched maybe about a year or so ago, and it was um, headed up by Robin Foister, who was formerly from the Women's Weekly, and um, it's a lifestyle destination show. It's got lots of uh, contributors who were, you know, who made the exodus from print and are trying this out as an online destination for their work. And so they've actually gone into partnership with a digital media company called Inception Digital. And basically they're going to, as it it seems, determine their, their, be in charge of their advertising, their sponsorships, working with brands and that sort of thing. What are your thoughts on that? You know, and it hasn't been around for that long, the carousel. And obviously it's decided that it's, it wants to outsource this, this function to, to work with a digital media company for those sorts of things instead of do it for themselves. Thoughts? Uh, well, I think that it's, you know, it's worth realising that they're two quite uh, specific skill sets, the two yes. different things. Um, so obviously 
the team at the Carousel have decided that they are better at creating content and putting together a fantastic website than they are at possibly creating um, partnerships and brand, um, yeah, brand partnerships for that sort of uh, for that. A particular website so I think it makes perfect sense from that perspective they are two quite different skill sets well, what do you think I think that I mean I'm all for outsourcing especially when you have different skill sets I think that um, you know Mama Mia for example they do it in-house they don't outsource to a particular agency I mean they may use an agency for certain aspects of it but essentially mm. they they have their own internal sales and marketing and partnerships people. Uh, and I think that when you are a going to rely on advertising, like the carousel, because then they don't charge for their content or anything like that, mm. I think that when you already have so many people you're supporting in your own organisation, because you, you look at their, their masthead and you look at the number of uh, high-profile writers uh, and content creators who provide content for their website and Mm -hmm. they will want to return from it, they've already got kind of like a bloated um, organisation, whereas Mia Mia Friedman started with one person, Mia Friedman, you know what I mean, (laughs) and was able to – and she's got lots of people now, 80 people now or whatever, but she started off very lean, whereas the carousel already started bloated, and then you're taking on – another bloated organisation and you're relying on a whole other organisation for your revenue or relying on a whole other organisation for, you know, a key aspect anyway, maybe not all your revenue, but a key aspect of your sustainability. I think that it can work, but I think in that situation, when you've got two sort of organisations in that way, you've you've got to have all your ducks lined up in a row if it's really going to succeed. So I wish them well. I hope all their ducks do line up in a row because I do want to see things like this succeed. Yeah. Um, but sometimes I feel that some organisations or some online publications go big too quickly. Right. Which is okay. fine when you're the Huffington Post and you've got a whole heap of money behind you. But unless you have that level of investment, um, starting off smaller might be yes. a smarter option. Okay, that makes perfect sense as well. So, yeah, that's just That's why we have you on the team, Valerie, (laughs) to point these things out. And speaking of having you on the team, Valerie, to point these things out, we have decided that this week's special author interview is actually going to be a bonanza version of Ask Val because (laughs) we have received so many questions of late and we get a lot of the similar, uh, a lot of similar questions. Like they're all sort of come under various categories. Yes. Um, and so we've decided that we will bring all those working writers tips into a Bonanza Ask Val section and I'm going to ask Val the questions that you guys have sent in to us or uh, a, a variation of those because, as I said, we do get the same questions over and over again. Um, and this time around we've decided to focus on the freelance writing aspect of things because we have received a lot of questions in that area. So, Valerie... I'm ready. You're in the hot seat, baby. I'm ready. Oh okay. Goodness. There's going to be a million dollar question at some point, I'm sure. But Does that I'm not mean quite sure. I get a million dollars? No, it means I get a million dollars when you get it right. <laughs> um, all right. So we're going to start with the probably the number one question that comes up over and over again, and that is about pitching. Mm. Pitching is such an important part of being a freelance writer. It's absolutely essential that you get it right. So I'm going to ask you, Valerie, for your three best tips for pitching. Successful pitching. Wow. Okay. Um, mm. 
I think that the first thing you need to do is you have to grab the editor's attention straight away. That doesn't mean you need to do a song and dance or create or, or chuck a joke in or anything like that. You just need to get straight to the point about what your story is about because if you take three paragraphs before you get to that, mm-hmm. they're going to be bored or they're just going to think, this person is just taking too long to get to the point. Imagine what their mm-hmm. writing is like. So get straight to the point as to... Hi, so-and-so, I'm a freelance writer. I was wondering you might be interested in a story about X and make sure X really grabs them. So it's got to say, you've got to be able to say it in a sentence and it's got to be interesting. So I guess that brings me to the second part, which it's got to have that wow factor. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's got to immediately tell the editor that is going to be interesting to my readership. And so often they don't have the wow factor. They're just like, oh, I'd like to write about fashion. (laughs) or oh I'd like to write about this charity and it's like there's nothing wrong with fashion there's nothing wrong with that particular charity it's got to uh but you've got to tweak your pitch to make it really clear that there's a real story there that that you have an angle and that's it that's where people fall down they don't have an angle they just Mm -hmm. have a wide broad subject but so let's talk about the angle let's just discuss briefly tell me the difference between an angle and a subject so a subject is something broad, you know, fashion, or or I'd like to write a profile on John Smith, mm-hmm. or you know, without necessarily telling us why John Smith is interesting or would be um, of interest to the readers. So a broad a, a subject is just something a, a broad general topic, mm-hmm. but an angle is something that is far narrower and um, and much more defined. I know people say, but I want to appeal to as many people as possible, mm-hmm. but no, you don't because chances are that that publication that you're writing for does have a very defined audience and they might specifically be, you know, women between 35 and 45 who have a young family or, you know, who have children mm-hmm. and who are not working at the moment but they used to be professional people in, but they're taking time out to raise a family. It might be that defined or it might be, you know, like um, Sport Fishing Australia has increased in, um, in, in circulation. It might be defined it to just males who, uh, over 35 who are really interested in sport fishing, not that I even know what sport fishing is exactly, but um, mm. so you won't be writing that story. So I won't be writing that story, no. So it, it needs to be narrowed down that to something that is not only interesting and relevant to that audience, but often is it's topical or timely in some way. So right. there could be some kind of topical or timely hook that people can um, – that people know, okay, I'm going to write about it because sport fishing season is about to start and these are the things I need to get organised before sport fishing season or whatever. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely about narrowing it down to something with a very clear focus. Okay, so you need to be succinct. You need to sell your story mm. and you need to make sure that it's for that particular publication. Would yes. that be fair? Yes, but one more, and that yep. is people fall down in pictures when they do not provide enough detail. And this is particularly important if the editor has never had anything to do with you before. Mm-hmm. If the editor has a long-standing relationship with you and your friends, you can, you know, write a couple of sentences and they'll know that you can deliver the goods because they've worked with you many times before and they, they and you can, you know, just write, 
not very much in a pitch at that point because, you know, you already know each other. But if mm. you've never dealt with that editor before, just writing two lines, just wondering if you'd like to be interested in an article on sport fishing is not enough. You mm. need to actually detail, I would interview this person, then I would interview this person, I would include these kind of statistics, I would include this kind of case study because you're essentially trying to impress. It's like dating, isn't it? Like when mm. you're dating, you, you pull out the big guns when you're first going out, <laughs> you, you put your makeup on, yep. you brush your hair, you use your you GHD your straightener. Mm. And after you've been together with someone for five years, you might not pull out the GHD straightener as frequently. So it's, it's a similar concept in that I don't know how that came into my head just then. But it's, it's nice. I like it. It's good. Yeah. <laughs> By but, the time you know, you've been five years in, you're in your pyjamas, you know. <laughs> exactly. But the same applies for the relationship you have with an editor. Mm. Okay. All right. Well, speaking of your relationship with an editor, when you're first starting out, how do you get an editor to reply? Like a, a lot of people um, have asked us this question. They've sent mm. pitches off and they're not even getting a response. Yes. Firstly, write a damn good pitch because mm. if your pitch is really boring or doesn't hit the mark, the editor – it has no compulsion to reply, has no reason to reply. Um, and there are editors out there who, who, who do reply, but there are many editors who don't simply because they're too busy or when it doesn't quite hit the mark, they just don't know what to say because, yeah. you know, they don't want to say, hey, this was really a crap pitch. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they're not about to do that, so they feel that silence is better. <laughs> you know, I've certainly been on the receiving end of some crap pitches and um, it's very hard to know what to say. So if you want a response, write a really good pitch. It's as simple okay. as that. But also think of your subject lines. People often make the mistake of just saying um, – do you take freelance articles in their subject line or something really vague like story idea, mm. full stop. <laughs> it, it make your subject line compelling enough so that they want to open it and then make your pitch powerful and strong enough that they think it's interesting enough to get back to you. Okay. All right. So it's all about you it's- making them reply. Yeah, yeah absolutely. There's, I, I mean, you need to be interesting enough to reply. <laughs> no, no, pressure. Yeah, no pressure. All right. So, okay. So let's imagine that, that I'm not that interesting and I've sent it off and unfortunately I'm not getting a response. I haven't heard from, from my editor. How long do I wait before I can send the pitch to someone else? And if I decide that I'm going to do that, should I tell the original editor that I've withdrawn my pitch? Well, if you feel that you, it depends, if you feel that your pitch was actually weak and you were hoping to get some feedback on the pitch from the editor, then shame on you. It is the, it's not the editor's job to coach you on your pitch. It's up to you to send them a a fabulous pitch. So if you felt that your pitch was weak, well, you shouldn't have sent it in the first place. And yeah. But yes. realistically, most of us are not sending our pictures off thinking they're weak. Good. We've okay. sent something off that we think is strong because okay. otherwise why would we have sent it? So, okay, I think I've sent a strong pitch. Now what do I do? Let's assume you've sent a strong pitch that, you're, that you think is good. Then, you know, back yourself. Don't give up. In the, you need to follow up, you know, because you may have sent it two weeks ago and just because you haven't heard from an editor, don't give up. Uh, you, she 
might have been sick that day. She might have been on leave. She might have had to take a mother to the doctor or whatever. All sorts of things could have happened. So follow up. Make the phone call or send the pitch again and just say, you know, just wondering if you received this and was wondering if um, you would be interested. I could also interview so-and-so, you know, think of another person that could that you might be able to add value to that pitch. And um at least back yourself up by following up with mm. a phone call or email or both and then see what happens and hopefully they get back to you. You know, sometimes that could have just been lost in their inbox and they just right. needed to refresh on. So if I don't hear again, do I have to tell the original editor that I'm withdrawing my pitch before I send it off to somebody else? If you are definitely giving up, like if they've, you know, you, if you, for example, which you might want to do if it's a time-sensitive pitch and you need to pitch it to somebody somewhere else if you want it to see a light, the light of day because you've timed it with, you know, Anzac Day, you've timed it with Easter or whatever, then if you want, you can send them – I would never use the word withdraw. I would also say – I would say something like um, – Oh hi, just wondering if you had any further thoughts on this pitch. If if not, no worries. Thanks for considering it. I hope it's okay with you. I'm just going as it's time sensitive. I'm going to pitch it um, elsewhere, mm. and you know, be respectful and polite. And I do not recommend using the word withdraw. I know that some people say, and I have as an editor, I have received emails that have said as I haven't heard from you I'm withdrawing this pitch from your publication and I feel like replying saying to them you know you ne- we're never in with a chance anyway so oh. you're not withdrawing <laughs> which of course you do not Valerie no, do I you do not no but I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on this do you what do you think of the whole idea of withdrawing the pitch Oh, I don't think I've ever withdrawn a pitch in my life no, I think I I've basically never. send it off and um if I generally if I don't hear back I follow up with a you know, just double checking that you've received this. If you're not interested, that's fine. Just let me know. Um, generally speaking, if you do that, you'll get a, yeah, sorry, it's not for us, mm. which is all you want really yeah. at that point. Yeah. Um, and then you can take your idea elsewhere. Um, but I also realise, like I guess having worked in magazines as long as I did, I also realise that sometimes, it, it, you know, People go, oh, you know, editors are so terrible. It took them six months to get back to me. But sometimes, you know, the idea goes into your inbox and you think about it and it's not right for what you're doing. And then four months later, something comes up and you go, oh, wait a minute, there mm. was that idea. And then you go back to the freelancer, you know. So mm. it's it's just, I, I guess it's always about remembering that magazine offices and newspaper offices are really, really busy places and mm. inboxes are seriously busy places. So I don't, yeah, no, I don't think I've ever withdrawn a pitch. Sometimes I'm a little bit surprised when someone comes back to me six months later and says, we really want to run that story. How do you feel about that? Mm-mm. And you're like, oh, okay, I'd totally forgotten that. Yeah. But I want to put you on the spot and ask you specifically your opinion on when writers send emails to editors saying, uh, as I haven't heard back from you, I'm now withdrawing this pitch from your publication. Do you well, th- I, is that a good idea or not? No, I mean I don't think it is. But I th- also think that as an editor, I don't I, I don't think it would affect me one way or the other. I think I'd shrug my shoulders and go, yeah, whatever. Um, so, you know, like if you really feel you need to do that, then f- go for it. But I, I don't think it's a necessary thing mm. personally. For me, as an editor, I it depends on the tone of the email. And oh, I've, very much so. I've had people who've, who I've shrugged my shoulders just because, okay, whatever, strange. But I've had people who I'm like, I'm never going to work with you again. <laughs> oh, yeah. If you write that email, it's, it's always about like I think what people need to remember, 
is that the industry is very, very small. Yep, we all talk. And we all talk to each other. But not only that, is that the person that you're dealing with at X magazine may be at Y magazine two weeks later, Mm. um, in which case you've burnt bridges at both publications. So it's really important that you just, you know, you leave stars and sunshine everywhere you go. I'm so sorry that, you know, it wasn't for you. Thanks very much. You know, like be polite all the time. And then, you know, swear at your friends, vent, do whatever you have to do at home. But do not do it in an email to anybody. Yes, or you will end up on a blog post called 10 Writers Who Took Themselves Too Seriously. You will. How bad would that be? (laughs) All right, let's move on. Your next question, Valerie, in the hot seat is, (laughs) this is one of my personal favourites. So I'm someone, I'm transitioning to be a freelance writer and I have a day job and I have other things that I need to do and how do I find the time to write, Valerie? You make the time. Yay! It doesn't. Good answer. <laughs> that could be the million dollar question. Yes. Oh, but then you get the million dollars. Um, I do. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, it's it's not rocket science. Where else is the time going to come from? Mm. Um, I think you've referred to it as snatched time as well, mm. and which is so true. You know, where you are. Um, you might think you need to carve out an entire two hours or something after dinner, but if you don't have that because you're putting kids to bed and you're doing this and you're doing that, then you may only have 20 minutes between when, like while you're waiting to pick your kids up from school or something like that. So you need to make the time. It's as simple as that. If you say, but there isn't time, then I will say, well, you don't want to, be, you don't want to write badly enough. It's, mm-hmm. yeah. It is uh, a priority thing. I think it's something, but I, I think it's also something that people find very difficult to prioritise because it feels like I've written several blog posts on this subject and one of the things that I think that we need to realise about writing is that it is not a convenient thing to do. Mm. It's not convenient to anyone around you. It's something that, you know, like it's an inconvenient thing to do because you have to do it by yourself and you have to, you know, like it's it's in your head and it's all those sorts of things. So you have to prioritise it for yourself. It's yes. as simple as that. You know, no one's going to prioritise it for you. No. You've got to find the place in your life that you can make it work and that's um, that's different for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. No one can prioritise it for you. That's that's the key. Hmm. All right. My next question, and this is something that I get asked a lot and I'm sure that you do, is um, how do I get a mentor or someone experienced to get advice from? How can I convince somebody that, you know, mm-hmm. I want to pick their brains and that they're going to let me? Sure. Well, one easy thing to do first is get peers. So, and out of those peers, a a mentor may emerge or they may put you in touch with a mentor. And Mm. so what I mean by peers is other people in the same boat as you. So other people who are writers and other people who are at a similar level to you as as writers or, or maybe just sort of one level up or something. And whether that's a writers group or, you know, certainly the graduates of the Australian Writers Centre join the graduate groups and they network a lot online and get a lot of fantastic advice from each other online. So at one level, um, mentor each other in a sense, mm. uh, just, just in terms of people who are in a similar situation to you. But then if you want a mentor that is way more experienced, then um, A, still um, get advice from your peer group because they may be able to recommend mentors or or put you in touch or suggest mentors that would suit you. But uh, look for them in in the first instance. Mm. So look for them in, you know, writers' centres, in arts organisations. It really depends on the kind of mentor you want. So you really need to identify the kind of person you want and go searching for that person. 
But then you need to approach them. And I don't actually think it's a good idea to approach someone and say, hi, just wondering if you could be my mentor. No. <laughs> Cold, because that person may not know you or may not know you very well. Uh, and that's quite a big commitment to mentor somebody. So take baby steps. Approach someone first with, you know, a, a suggestion for coffee or just a suggestion of some advice, just advice over the phone on a particular issue you might be facing at the moment so that you can start that relationship and that they can see that you are open to their advice because no one wants to mentor somebody who isn't going to actually, you know, listen no. to what they have to say. And act on it. Yeah, and act on it. Mm. So it's important to, you know, just start with baby steps and then let the uh, relationship evolve because that that initial chat will also help you see whether you click with that mentor. Mm. You may not like that mentor so or not, or you may just find that they have a style that doesn't quite suit you or whatever. So um, and I think also be respectful of their time, particularly if they're um, quite advanced in the industry and they're busy people. Um, I found it quite confounding when people say, uh, you know, ask me for their advice and then tell me, oh, they're too busy to talk to me and can they talk to me in three months' time? Mm -hmm. It's like I find that kind Mm. of bizarre. Okay, well, you approached me and Mm -hmm. I'm happy to give you the time but now you're too busy, that's fine. It's a bit disconcerting. It's very strange. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, yeah, so – I think that yeah, baby steps, but start with your peer group first because you will develop wonderful connections and get great advice even just from your peer group. Okay. Hmm. All right, next question. Hmm. I get a bit despondent sometimes because there seems to be so many freelance writers out there. How do I get the work? Mm. Mm. I, the first thing is to remind yourself that there has never been a better time to be a freelance writer. There are so many more opportunities than before, so many more channels than ever before. And even though people do say that they're, you know, printers dying and this is happening, this is, you know, in decline, the reality is there's way, way, way more exponentially way more content than ever before. And so there's actually, um, yeah, a lot more opportunity. So remind yourself of that. And then um, how do you stand out is, is I think what the question is saying. Yeah. How do I get the work? Yeah. And again, cream rises to the top. Be good. (laughs) Be good. So, you know, write pictures that sing that are powerful that are that that are on point um when you if you're di- if you're looking for a mentor make sure you're professional so that and and that you don't waste their time because then guess what they're going to open doors for you and refer you on to other people yeah you know yeah be good be professional absolutely it's it's, it's actually pretty simple Okay. All right. Well, just on that subject though, like what if you're sort of working uh, as a freelancer and you want to branch out into an area of writing that you haven't done before? So be it content, you know, for Mm. websites or be it corporate writing, how do you cover up a lack of experience? Because this is something I think a lot of new freelancers struggle with. If you don't have a long list of publishing credits, what do you do? Learn. 
Absolutely. You, if you're not confident in a particular area, you, you will gain confidence once you realise you probably once you get the skills in that particular yeah. area. It can be scary when you're you, you're used to a particular genre or type of writing, and you want to move to another kind. Say you want to go from feature writing to copywriting. Even though there's some crossover, they are quite different beasts. So it's not just a simple matter of going, bang, I can just be a copywriter and and I'm going to be confident at it and great at it. If you're unsure about that move, do a course, mm. you know, or, or have coffee with a copywriter and, and pick their brain. Um, I, I personally think that doing a course is, obviously I'm going to say this, but I, I, I honestly believe that doing a course can fast track so many things because you just learn it straight away as opposed to taking years to figuring it out. Yeah. So if you're... It's often, a, as you say, it's often a confidence thing. Like yes. it's in the sense of, well, if you've gone and you've done a course, then you you know what's involved. You have a very, you know, you've got a very clear idea of what the um, other side, so the client, is expecting from you. And that's, yep. I think, half the, half the battle. Absolutely. And I think also the great thing about doing a course is that sometimes when we want to cross to a different type of writing or genre, um, we, it, we, we think that this is what we really want. Uh, but then some, some writers get there and they go, oh, my God, this is so not suited to my personality. But if they did the course first, they would have had a taste of yeah. what was involved and they may be able to make that decision before getting a client and having mm. to do a project when, mm. and having to then realise that this isn't what they really want to do. Okay. Well, on that, let's just as a follow-up to that mm-hmm. question, I think this is one of the number one questions that um, I am asked and I'm sure that it is also a nut, like for you would be absolute number one. How do I get into corporate writing, Val? Uh, mm. Number one, you need to um, decide if you want to get in, in it because if you do decide you want to get in it, then you need to put it out there. Put it in your bio, mm. you know, put it in your LinkedIn profile. Tell people, tell your peers because, I mean, I know certainly with my peers, we refer so much work to each other mm. and uh, in all, all different types of writing. Uh, but and interestingly, there's, there's someone who started out with us when we were first starting freelancing who refused to kind of refer work to any of us she was very competitive or not competitive she felt she wanted to keep it all separate she wanted to keep it all to herself in a sense she didn't feel that it was for whatever reason she didn't want to refer work to us whereas we didn't care we just referred to work to each other all the time and um because there was always enough to go around I think she felt there wasn't enough to Mm. go around and interestingly she's no longer a writer because she could never get enough gigs oh right yeah so that's what why goes I, around comes around that's well and just the the importance of that peer group and mm. and, and you know networking with each other mm. um even just informally so <clears throat> i digress but um put it out there to your peer group put it out there you know online or if you have a website or whatever and when you start telling people that you do do corporate writing, also give examples. I write newsletters. I write annual reports. I write, you know, email marketing, whatever it is, so that people have a clear idea that you do that. Mm-hmm. And you'll be amazed at what can happen after that. If you also have a relationship with an editor at a publication, put it out there to them as well because I know I got a couple of corporate writing gigs because 
people didn't contact me, the corporations didn't contact me directly, but they contacted my editor at the Sydney Morning Herald at the time and said to her, look, we know you're in a full-time gig, but can you recommend some of your freelancers to, to do this corporate writing gig? But because she knew that I did corporate writing, I was immediately, you know, they were referred immediately to me. But if your editor doesn't know that you do this as well, they can't refer you, right? It's a matter right. of just putting it out there. Okay. We have just two questions left, Valerie. You're doing okay. a splendid job. Okay. Thank you. So we're coming up to one of the big ones. How do I find out if a publication actually pays for content? Uh, well, this is not an exact science. Mm. Uh, it's, it can give you an idea. So firstly, look at the ads. If there's lots of ads from lots of fancy <laughs> brands, chances are they have a decent revenue stream and therefore can pay for content. Mm. If they um, do not, then chances are they're running on the smell of an oily rag and may not pay for content. That's one yeah. thing, mm-hmm. not scientific, not exact science, but, you know, uh, one way. The other way, look at their guidelines, their submission guidelines. Sometimes they say whether they pay for content mm. or not. Sometimes they don't, but at least have a look because it might. they might say. Se- uh, uh, thirdly, ask your peers, mm. you know, because your peers may have um, – written for them before or know somebody who's written for them before and will be able to give you a quick answer. I know that certainly in the graduate forums at the Australian Writers' Centre, they're constantly asking questions like that to each other, you know, does so-and-so pay or what's what's their rate, how many cents per word do they pay? And, uh, yeah, so those three ways, I reckon. Okay. All right. And last question of the day, um, I'm a freelance writer. Do I need a website? Do you need a website? You know what? It's kind of like... Hasn't everyone got a website these days? Doesn't no. matter whether you're a freelance <laughs> writer or not. <laughs> no, they don't, Val, but that's a nice try. <laughs> do um, I need an official website? Do I need a website that, you know, like I'm going to put on the bottom of my pictures and send my, you know, send potential editors to and that sort of stuff? I don't think you need one. I know many, many uh, writers who don't have one. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, it's kind of like saying, you know, do I need to wear clothes? It's just so easy. Like mm. you don't need a fancy website, one-page website, like an About Me website or whatever, just a one-page so that people know how to contact you. That's, yeah. that's, that's all. You don't need, even need to put your, your, your stories on it. Mm. But, but these days it's kind of just an easy way for people to find you or contact you. An online you. business card. Yeah, it's really an online business card. So, mm. And it's you can get a free one from about.me mm. or, or you can, you know, have your own, of course. Um, but that would be the reason I would have a website, not even for the marketing, not even to say here's what I'm all about, not even to say here are all my articles, but here's how to find me. Mm. Okay. Mm. Well, that brings us to a, a, the first round of Ask Val and you've done a <laughs> splendid job and I think we'll take you on as our carryover champion. <laughs> Gee, thanks, Al. I feel like we need some music now. <laughs> anyway, let's move on, shall we? Let's talk about something way more interesting. Yeah. Let's talk about hot dudes reading. Are you saying I wasn't interesting? You were fabulous. You were very interesting. I would have totally taken your pitch and responded. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Al. A web pick for the week is an Instagram account and it's called Hot Dudes Reading. (laughs) So somebody has decided to create an Instagram account and all it is is pictures of hot guys and they're on the train or they're, they're often on the train because that's often where they read and they're reading and they've got 
271,000 followers and um, they say that if you've got, you know, pictures of Hot Dudes Reading, you can email them to hotdudesreading at gmail.com and then they make sure they say no Kindles. (laughs) So it has to be books. It has to be a paper book. Wow. Is there a, like a, like in the like um, interest of equality, is there hot chicks reading as well? I don't know. We should have a look. But, you know, I'm quite happy that there's hot dudes reading. <laughs> okay. All right. Oh, there is actually a Tumblr for hot girls reading books. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to have a look at that just in case it takes me down a rabbit hole that I don't want to go down. But nonetheless, <laughs> all right. Um, so that brings us to the end of our episode. And what an exciting episode it's been. <laughs> well, remember, if you want um, additional information on freelance writing, obviously there's the courses at the Australian Writers' Centre, uh, magazine and newspaper writing stage one, which tells you all about pitching and, you know, how to deal with editors and magazine writing stage two. And there's also Alison's ebook. Tell us about your ebook. Oh, there is my ebook. Yes, I have an ebook called Get Paid to Write, The Secrets of Freelance Writing Success. And I've kind of distilled a lot of the stuff that I've learned over the last 20 odd years of, of actually doing this into one neat little 68 page ebook. So um, have a look. It's got great reviews. I'm pretty excited. Yeah. Hmm. So thank you for listening this week. Uh, next week is the big 5 Oh. The big 5-0, episode 5 50. We should probably have a midlife crisis or something. Yes, and buy a Ferrari. Oh, absolutely. Yes, we should do that. But I think maybe we should have saved hot dudes reading for next week. That could have been our midlife crisis. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so (laughs) thank you for listening, everyone. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, please email us, podcast at writerscentre.com.au and we can find Alison on social media where? Uh, You'll find me on Twitter at Al Tate, T-A-I-T, or you'll find me on Facebook at Alison Tate Writer. And you can find me at Valerie Koo and, of course, the Australian Writers' Centre, writerscentre.com.au. We will um, look forward to celebrating our 50th birthday with you next week. So Can't until wait. then, catch you. Uh, have a good week. Bye. Bye.